Hello, everybody, and welcome to Scholars at Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the academy. Today, we've got a very spooky episode for you. <laughs> yes, Matthew. Yes. Yes, indeed. Very spooky. Very spooky. You are hearing the voice of Terrell. Say hello. Yes, Master. Hello. <laughs> and also to my left is my other assistant, Kyle Romero. Hi. Fucking very good. Um, <laughs> hi, guys. Sorry. We're back. Sorry. It's a, it's a spooky Halloween. Yeah, there we go. Spooky Kyle goes spooky. Um, welcome, everyone, to our first Halloween episode. Um, it's it's actually just Eric Price. I don't know if you could tell from the voice. It's just me. <laughs> we we so. did not bring in a ringer to do the right. Transylvanian accent. We didn't. As, as much as you would have expected. As great as that was. Yeah. And actually, Terrell Taylor really is here. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, I'm, that not, was not I'm not Igor, Igor. from yeah. the movie Young Frankenstein. But uh, it was probably better than my Transylvania accent, actually. It was pretty solid. It, it was, was very good. Solid. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> All right. So, so the frightening game we have to discuss today is a game by Supermassive Games. Uh, came out in 2015, and the game is called Until Dawn. Till Dawn. Um, so today we're going to try something slightly different than what we maybe usually do, and we really want to focus on a couple of topics or sort of themes or th- you know things that that sort of stuck out to us when we played this game. Um, so so we have some supporting texts: George P. Landau's Hypertext 3.0 Critical Theory and New Media in an Era of Globalization. Uh, we may also draw on Espen Arthsith's. Um, 1997 text uh, called Cybertext. And we may also, once again, he's back <laughs> like a zombie. Spooky. Hey, Halloween, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Uh, Alexander Galloway's uh, Essays on Algorithmic Culture again. Um, but basically what we want to do is sort of work through a couple of topics that came up while we were while we were playing this game, things that we thought were most important to address. And we're going to pull quotes in from these sources when it's necessary, but we're not necessarily going to work through those texts all the way together. So... Um, you know, it'll be a little bit more pastiche, a little bit more, uh, uh, a little bit looser, but um, we're trying something different. So. Maybe it'll be multilinear. Oh my God, maybe it will. <laughs> the but- What will the butterfly effect of this setup be? Occur. That one actually has Ooh. like legitimacy to maybe be actually legit. Because it's just chaos? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> our podcast is just chaos. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so... Again, so we're talking about Until Dawn today, and there's a couple of things that we wanted to talk about. So uh, we'll set up what the game sort of is in just a second, but like one of the main things that Until Dawn sort of uh, was marketed a lot as being and as like the sort of selling point of it, sort of specialness of it, is this idea of the butterfly effect. And this is like a really common, like the sort of basic conception of this is like really small changes in one part of a system can cause massive results or, or, or sort of effects in another part, right? And that's the that's a sort of general understanding of that. So we want to work through whether or not we buy that Until Dawn is actually making use of the butterfly effect. Um, and if it is, in like to how is it using that and, and how might it be similar to or, or sort of different from uh, a different kind of sort of technology and also theoretical uh, paradigm, it's kind of both, called hypertext. Um, this is, hypertext is obviously a technology, um, but there's also a lot of sort of media theory, critical theory, literary theory that has made use of and thought about hypertext and its meaning, uh, et cetera. So I want to sort of put those things in combination with each other, the idea of the butterfly effect and, and hypertext. Um, Until Dawn is also very much a game that almost wants to be a movie. Um, so we want to talk about what it means when games sort of remediate cinema. 
and we want to push and sort of see which which elements, what what kinds of things is is this game borrowing from, uh, sort of horror tropes or like the formal uh, language of, of film, and what elements of those are sort of successful and which ones maybe don't work as well. So um, that's another thing we want to talk about, and then we also want to just sort of. This is very related to that that second part about cinema, but what is what is the player's role in a game where, where you're sort of almost just choosing which cutscene plays next? I think that's a that's one way to describe how the how the flow of the game functions, and maybe is a little unfair to all the, the sort of different kinds of choices you have to make. But I think there's a certain extent to which the player is almost an editor of of a film. You're sort of not exactly sure where the plot's going to go, but you get to choose the general direction, and then the game sort of reveals what that what that choice might have in store. So those are our three sort of topics that we're going to work through. Um, and we did want to sort of set up the game a little bit. Maybe, Kyle, you want to sort of give us a quick summary of, of sort of the who, what, where, when, why of the sort of story sure. of this game. So um, like all good horror th- uh, media, it starts with a bunch of teens going to a cabin in the middle of the woods, right? Um, this is eight teens, although they're all like voice acted and, uh, face mapped from people who are like in their 30s. So, you know, <laughs> just like any good horror movie. Exactly. Um, they're teens who look like they're 34. Um, a bunch of teens go into a cabin in the in the woods in, a, I think it's Canada, like Western Canada, like the Pacific Northwest, basically, yep. which becomes important later. Um, so it's very snowy. Uh, they are all going up there. The previous year, uh, they had um, one of the teens who owns the house, or his family owns the house, he mm-hmm. had twin sisters, and the previous year, they had, like, played a prank on these twin sisters, and then they'd kind of, like, disappeared. And we know as the game players that they they fell off this cliff. Uh, we don't really know why. They were, like, chased by a mysterious guy, but they fell off this cliff. Um, and that's kind of all we know. And so then these eight teens come back, and suddenly, like, things start kind of falling apart. And there's, like, a psycho in the house who is going to try to... Um, you think is trying to kill them, and then there's some plot twists, plot twists, plot twists, and it's about uh, maybe eight or nine hours total, mm-hmm. and the developers have said there are, I think the quote is, hundreds of possible endings. And right. so you get these junctures, maybe maybe 20 or 30 in total of, like, big junctures where you can choose, like, do I, you know, at one point, like, two people are put up on, like, a saw blade rack, and, like, they're like, they're, like you can choose which one's going to die, mm-hmm. and so you have to choose. And then there's, like, maybe 20 or 30 of those, and then hundreds of little tiny ones. Like, do I pick up this book? Do I, like, pick up, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like, any little thing, or open yeah. this door or do, something. Do I walk th- right or left at yeah. this path with no real suggestion of what yeah. the significance or implications of doing one or the other? Sometimes it's, like, go quickly, take shortcut, or go the long way, but other times it's kind of... Unclear yeah. exactly why, and why you do some it, of those but. times for those minor junctures, you get this little thing that flicks on the top of the screen, and then like little butterflies come all over to tell mm-hmm. you like you just made a decision that's important. You know, for the right. big ones, you're like, obviously, I killed this guy instead of this guy. That's important. But then like there was a time really like we like poked at a little like weird hand coming out of a box, which. I don't care for horror games. That's going to come out pretty quickly. I actually kind of enjoyed Until Dawn, but okay. don't care for the general basis of horror games or mm-hmm. horror movies, if I'm being honest. Okay. Not my jam. But we like high-fived this little hand coming out of a box, and it was like butterfly effect, and we're like, wait, what? And, then, <laughs> yeah. and like, so like the kind of the plot can move from those little points to those big junctures. Um, right. right. Yeah, and so that's the basic plot. Also... Rami Malek from Mr. Robot is in it, and Hayden Panettiere is in it, and Brett Dalton from Ages of S.H.I.E.L.D. is in it. So. And and there's, and in addition to this sort of 
teens in the in the scary yeah, cabin. All of whom are like thirty five years old. Right. Just like pointing that. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, there are sort of um, there are about I think there's about eleven chapters in the whole game, and in between each of those chapters, there's a little interlude where. You're in some sort of therapist or psychologist's office, office speaking to Peter Stormare. Who's great. Who's just Peter Stormare the heck out of it. It's doing like, his his accent, accent, which is like whatever his nationality is, plus like the weirdness of Peter Stormare. Yeah. And it's very. It's I really very... wish he was just like from Ohio or something. And he was <laughs> like, fantastic. this is the way I talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good Peter Stormare. I've been working on it. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, and, and then so so those these little interludes where it's it's often seems like he is speaking directly to the player. There's a lot of references to this torture porn. Are you sick of it? This game has to stop. And that's like, really good. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's uh, I didn't know I had gentlemen. It that me. was Peter Stormare yeah, who came actually, in to. That's gonna be, and we just want to announce our Patreon campaign because we have to pay for that. That's gonna cost. <laughs> yeah, me it cost us forty thousand yeah. dollars to bring Peter Stormare in for yeah. that. He's already left. Goodbye. I have to go have lunch now. <laughs> that, see, he was he was like <laughs> fucking up his own accent there at the end. <laughs> He stopped caring about yeah. it. He's not on the clock for that one. Um, yeah. So, so there are those little. So there's the sort of yeah. story of the teens, and you have these interludes with this uh, psychologist. And, and the gameplay. Sorry. And the gameplay too is mostly just kind of walking around and finding clues. Walking for serious walking, and yes. then uh, kind of cinematics that happen with quick time events. Yeah. And some of them are you know your normal quick time events like press circle really quickly so you don't knock your head on this tree or something. But then some are also like. The psycho's chasing you. Go right or left, and you have to pick right or left and do it. Right. Um, and really, that's pretty much all of the gameplay is yeah. those kind of quick time events. Some of which involve like shooting as well. So I guess it's not really. They elaborate more than like the basic quick time event. Yeah. But, um, yeah. That and just walking around agonizingly slowly. Yes. To find clues. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a certain pacing that happens with your character's movement speed, which, and we can maybe talk about this more when we think about cinema, but like. One of the biggest problems with, I think in general, I mean, I've read uh, some other research about <clears throat> horror games before. Tanya Krasvinska is a great scholar who's worked both on film and on video games. And, uh, you know, the the sort of the building of tension uh, really relies heavily on, like, pacing. And it's really kind of hard to control how quickly a player will do something. I'll give one quick example of last night. So we all we actually <laughs> played this game together for yep. the most part, which is good because I would not have played it otherwise. <laughs> so. we, we needed the you know needed yeah. a group play yeah. for this one, uh, and there was just this little scene where I had to climb up a, a rock wall, <laughs> and I I'm okay at games. I'm pretty. I've played them for a while. Brad and <laughs> and like I was trying to get up this wall, and I just kept goofing up one of the quick time events. Uh, it was like a series of like quite a few of them in a row. And there were like, you know, she was just climbing from rock to rock and you could just pick which rocks you were climbing up. I fell like three or four times. I wasn't being chased, but it just like, it sort of sucked any tension out of that yeah. moment immediately yeah. because there was this like necessarily repetitive thing. And the fall, like the falling cinematic was always the same. Exactly. And Derek was like, oh, well maybe like if you fall three times, like, Something kind of gonna happen. And it's like, no, it's just you're just gonna keep falling, it's and like, it's gonna be the same. Like, oh, okay, get back, get up, back climb. up, oh, get back, and you're like, right, yeah, it's like sucked all of the dynamic, like the dynamism yeah. of the moment to yeah. just like you're like, oh, I'm in a game again, exactly, you know? yeah. yeah. And so, and so, like little things like that. Um, I, I, you know, I think the I think the slow walking can be frustrating, but I think insofar as this game is always constantly trying to take as much of it, as much agency agency away from you on purpose to create a horror, Tension, create a yeah. sense of fear. Um, you know, there are there are still those little moments where, like, in allowing the player to do anything, they kind of, like, you know, 
they it's, open up the space for you to ruin their perfectly planned, yeah. data-driven tension. Yeah, yeah, and we can we can talk about that. <laughs> we'll talk about that more later. later. Terrell, is there anything you wanted to add? Anything you wanted to that we might have skipped over? I don't know if we want to talk about um, the sort of way in which the game was produced using the kind of biometrics. Yeah, let's um, hit that. Yeah, let's actually. talk. About I think that's now, worth yeah. that's worth mentioning. Sure. So, in one of the uh, sort of making of clips that are included with the uh, game, there's a sort of explanation of how it is they went in producing or really fine-tuning the sort of horror elements of the game. And one of that included attaching sort of biometric uh, monitors, wristbands, um, gauges, if you will, that measured things like heartbeat, but I think also uh, autonomic response, sort of the electricity on the skin, uh, to notice when... um, horror moments were most effective and where someone's resting heart rate was uh, when they experienced the best scare to try and place the scares in the most advantageous places possible. Um, And to a certain degree, I think it's very interesting because they had a number of people that they sort of let play the game and they measured these um, responses across a sort of wide variety of sort of player responses and feedback to kind of say, okay, this is where a scare is working, this is where a scare isn't working. But I think uh, the three of us kind of agreed that this was kind of a way to let the science do your writing for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure how we feel about that. It was, it's like the word I kept using was like data fetishism. Mm-hmm. Be- I, I, I was I love the idea of like using the biometric responses. I thought that was really neat. I'm curious as to why like you need to time scares when like heartbeat rates are low. Like I'm just curious as to why that's the thing. But anyway, yeah. Um, but then like the the director, or the you know one of the editor, uh, the creators of the game came on and he was like, you know, and this is so much better than all those like subjective experiential things that we normally do where people you just ask someone like, well, what was your experience? Like now we have data. Like right. we have like facts that can prove our argument. And, and like I think we all just kind of collective eye rolled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They all rolled out of our heads and we had yeah. to collect our eyes. Like the idea that like experience is not also a way to gather data. Right. 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 Yeah. Or experience even, is not data. Yeah. Right. And the data they're using could come from a variety of circumstances, right? right. And it is personalized, therefore it's subjective, right? Mm-hmm. So the kind of the fetishization of, of the biometric data as like, well, we have finally like scient like scientized horror. Not really buying that. Yeah. And there's and that like from that there, there's the narrative about them talking about their games, and they're like, okay, this is 98% more scary than yeah. that moment. It's it, And like you said, it's an interesting tool. It's interesting also to hear how they talk about it. When we were playing the games, and I, I know Terrell, there was the, the one where I noticed this the most, there are two times. There's like, again, these aren't even spoilers because they really are, these these scares that are in the middle of the game, sometimes they're really not connected to much. In the also plot. spoilers. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we're, we're gonna have to we're do spoilers. Spoil we will, these. yeah, we will end up spoiling some things. Maybe not as much, but certainly this might be a game you want to play first. I think. Yeah. I think if you know, I mean, again, quote unquote, how, what what does it mean to know the ending of this game? But yeah. Uh, anyway, the, these two these two scares is like something jumps out of a closet at you, um, and that one felt like a little bit like there was some build up. Like 
that feeling you get when you're watching a movie where there's like the movie, the music swells and there's a big absent space in the frame and you're like, what's happening? You're waiting and then something jumps at you. Mm-hmm. It's another one where like a ghost just shows up on the yeah. screen. Like, like like you see a ghost kind of walking by yeah. like, out of the corner of your eye and I was like, oh, that's trippy. And then like the music swells, music swells. You get to a door and you like open the door and there's like nothing. The music cuts and it's like beat, beat, giant face on the like on the screen yeah. just like Wah! it's like a friday night it's like a yeah. five was it five nights at freddy's or something like that oh yeah right. it's just yeah. like it just is a a scare or what were those videos where people used to send like yeah, youtube like, videos yeah. it was before and then YouTube, in the middle really. it was just like horror face right you know? yeah, yeah yeah just like a like a screamer right. is yeah. what they were called Screaming. like find you know the five objects so you're looking really close to the right. screen and then right. something jumps up at you and yeah and, yeah and it and it's you know because you don't know, because if you haven't seen this, you don't know it's coming, and it like it'll get you. Yeah. But it feels cheap, right? It feels yeah. a little cheap. And and if they if they're say, if they want to make if they want to then if we are talking with those developers and they're saying, well, look, we have the data, it backs it up, it's scary. I'm like, yeah, it was, but like, I feel like it's cheap. It's not yeah. connected to anything. Well, I think the yeah. big thing is if we want to talk about horror genre, and I'm not the first. I'm not the best person to talk about this, but one of the games that made a lot of splash in terms of doing horror right, and I can remember this from early Silent Hill, very small things that weren't every very jump scary, but were honestly kind of terrifying, but P.T. managed to do horror in a way that did not require on, ha, I didn't see that you know thing mm-hmm. that was going to come out of the closet at this point in time. But like, you know, because one of the things that you notice in that clip is that there's a certain point in time after the jump scare where everyone's able to sort of recollect themselves like, oh man, that was really intimidating. I really got a fright out of that. But I think really good horror goes beyond that. Like yeah. you yeah. leave the theater or you mm-hmm. leave the controller Ugh, yeah, I don't want to touch things because I yeah, and and maybe this is where we transition into talking about our experiences of the game and what we thought of it. But the, the I, I, I'm not a, I, okay. I, I think none of us are really big horror fans. Not at all. Yeah. I, I'm not like I am fine with horror. I don't hate it. I can enjoy it, but I also don't seek it out very often. So it's obviously not like a big thing I'm interested in. But those those jump scares don't stay with you, right? Yeah. The, the like those are like the junk food of of horror yeah. scares, right? It's just like you have it, you eat it, and it's gone, and then you're done. Okay, so um, I think one of the important concepts, one of the things that you know we already mentioned, this this butterfly effect thing is so important in the game. The game really foregrounds it. It it really emphasizes it both visually with that little effect, Kyle, that you were describing, and you know there are there, all of the clues and events are sort of portrayed with these little butterfly icons. So it's really leaning heavily on that concept. And it might be helpful for us to sort of set up what exactly the butterfly effect is. Um, I, I you know preface this with the fact that I'm not an expert on chaos theory or really even on like thinking about how networks function or anything like that. I'm getting there, but I did find a, a helpful quote. the The butterfly effect is is uh, this is the quote is the sensitive dependence of initial conditions in which a small change in one state of a deterministic nonlinear system can result in large differences in a later state. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the key words here to highlight is like the butterfly effect is more than just like something small changes and something large happens somewhere else, but it's meant to solve a it's me, it's mobilized to help try to understand really big systems, these nonlinear systems. 
Um, and so uh, this article, again, I can't remember the guy's name. I wish I'd written it down. It will be in the show notes. Um, he sort of has an abstract talking about chaos theory. And he, he states that nearly all non-trivial real-world systems are non-linear dynamical systems. Chaos describes certain non-linear dynamical systems that have a very sensitive dependence on initial conditions. Okay. Chaotic systems are always deterministic and may be very simple, yet they produce completely unpredictable and divergent behavior. So to bring it back to our game, I guess the question I actually want to pose is, do we feel that what happens in this game is what's being spoken about here? Is Are we really seeing the butterfly effect? Can we... Uh, there, there's a couple things. Is like this uh, nonlinear system. Is the game sort of functioning as a nonlinear system? Um, and are initial conditions determining the result of the game? Because I think that's really crucial to how that term is being made. I mean, does that does that spark anything for you guys? Although, yeah, I mean, something we talked about yesterday is that I don't think the game is nonlinear. Like that's what a lot of people have said about it. It's actually multilinear, right? Which maybe is like a fine difference, but I think a pretty critical one yeah, here, yeah. especially because nonlinear assumes that there is not an ending. And as we said, there are hundreds of endings, but those are all endings, right? right? So there right. is these are lines, mm -hmm. that the, there is a narrative that is supposed to be moving forward mm -hmm. always towards a goal. Yes. Um, so I can't, I, I think you can't call it nonlinear yeah. in that way. And more importantly, I think um, the butterfly effect is talking particularly about things that are in nonlinear deterministic systems. So an action is not towards an end goal. Mm -hmm. It just happens. Yes. And then something else happens, something else happens, and then something else happens. It's not like the butterfly flapping its wings in California does not be like, cool, the ultimate goal is to cause a hurricane in Argentina, right? It's just that a variety of things happen along the way, and right. then that thing happens too. Right, right. And this is, I mean, this this actually already moves into thinking about what is the player's role uh, in in a sort in one of these like deterministic chaos systems, intentionality is super unimportant, right? Exactly. The butterfly is not flapping its wings to cause something, and yet throughout the whole course of the game, there are these little choices that you make. And I mean, you know, the question of you know, there's usually only two options, and sometimes the choices aren't clear. But when it comes to interactions with people, it's pretty obvious how what which dialogue choice is going to improve your relationship with one or the other person. Um, so in, in that sense, there are all sorts of little causes along the way that affect it in certain short, certain shorter ways. And maybe this is like delect, uh, directing the, the narrative from one line to another. And this, that's the sense of multilinearity that we have here is it's sort of shifting back and forth between linear paths. Yeah. And I think that's sort of why I like this idea of the player more as as an editor and and like not so much as like a person who like does a thing that accidentally creates a whole series of of changes. I think there are moments in the game where you do something and then something you didn't expect happens because of that. I know Terrell had a had a feeling of that. I mean, I did too, but uh, Terrell had a particular strong feeling of that where you like you make a choice that doesn't feel like it's going to condemn someone or something like that. Uh, and then all of a sudden someone's dead or someone's like a really bad thing happened to one of the, the characters you were controlling. Yeah. But yeah. What, what uh, thing are you talking about in particular? <laughs> Terrell got pretty frustrated when we were. So, Hey, uh, I'll, I'll... You, you don't have to share the no, whole story. No, I know it's, it's, it's whatever, but it's also, <laughs> there's some bad blood here. It it's not bad blood. <laughs> it's, um, 
it's two things I think that are compounding in the in the um or medium of the video game, but also with the medium of the video game trying to play on uh, the medium of horror films, which is this kind of um, you don't get to see the full board, right? You don't get all of the information. So to to be just I guess explicit about it. There's a moment where one of the characters dresses up as a kind of villain of sorts, and he kind of becomes the kind of horror monster, or, oh, you think it's this bad guy who's rolling around doing a bunch of things, um, and that's you know what this whole sort of thing is going to be about. The game ultimately doesn't become about that. It's you know eventually revealed, like, oh, yeah, this is a character doing such and such. And there's a moment where we were all playing, and this is a moment where I had the controller, and... One of the characters is running away. I believe it's Sam is running away Aiden from. <laughs> oh save my the cheerleader, save the world. Right. <laughs> um, Sam is running away from Josh, I believe, and Josh is dressed up. And there are a number of choices. There's options to hide. There's options to run. And you basically have to assess the situation, decide which one is the best. And after running for a decent amount of time, uh, or after hiding for a decent amount of time, and after doing some things that I thought gave me a decent much of a head lead on this guy. I was like, all right, maybe now's my time to just book it, to get out of Dodge and get away. Turns out that that was what I, or, you know, we can't even really make the judgment that it was the wrong option yeah. because who knows? I might've gotten caught either way. That was how the character got caught and injected with this weird thing that essentially knocked, knocked her out, out yeah. so on and so forth. And that in a game context is what we would call a denial or what, Errant signal, I should say, is called a denial of personal consequence. Like mm-hmm. I don't know what the sort of what the effect of my 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 choices is going to be, right? And in a typical gaming sense, right? Like, and this is a, a fun thing that I kind of joked around with some other folks in a different contexts about. If I'm playing Super Mario Brothers and I press B, and there's a 50% chance that Mario's going <laughs> to jump, and another 50% chance that Mario's just going to die on the spot, <laughs> I don't want to play that. Yeah. That's not fun, yeah, yeah. right? And so the gaming moments of that happening here aren't really fun, yeah. right? Because it's one choice, one thing that I have control over, and I don't know how it's going to play out. But that denial of that sort of ability to understand what the consequence of my actions are is how the horror thing works, right? Yeah. It's what creates a sense, sort of sense of tension. And for me, that's where I think, eh, I don't know, how these genres are, are coming together. And I think that that's more what's going on than the sort of butterfly effect. I think the butterfly effect is kind of a coating of that central sort of element. Yeah, And, and for me, I, I just had this thought is that for whom, like, if, if we're talking about the butterfly effect, that's used in examples where a bunch of scientists, statisticians, data scientists, etc., have a, a ton of data about a certain phenomenon, like weather. They already have all the data. And the problem is not that they don't know some of the data. They just don't know how to trace some sort of causal through line. The equations to produce or something like weather are just way too hard. Exactly, and there's just too many variables, it's just too complex. That's totally not the perspective of the player when you're playing this game. You actually don't have all the data. In fact, when you're presented with, with some little piece of information, you don't know what it's going to lead to. So, if we take the position of the developers, they actually do have this sort of maybe they have a sort of chaos theory perspective on their own game where they're like, okay, we've programmed on all these possible choices and we know that certain ones will lead to this and certain ones will lead to that. We can't, we can't be sure which way the player's going to go. Right. 
it's from the perspective of the developers, this is a, a butterfly effect because the player is the unknown. The player is the thing that prevents game from unfolding in a predictable way. But the butterfly effect is experienced by the player. You know, you're sort of like wrapped up in the thing. Uh, but but it's not that the player is ever going to have that sort of view of data all at the same time. Unless they go outside, they look, read up a wiki, they watch some explanatory videos. That, but but that's something that you have to sort of step outside of the immediate context of the game to gather. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Terrell, you had a... Yeah, so I think it's an, an interesting to put this game into a certain moment. Um, it was came out in 2015, am I correct in that? Uh Three years after the adventure game genre kind of had its own renaissance through uh, Telltale's The Walking Dead series. And in that series, I think it maybe touched on to this chaos. Um, well, maybe not. And maybe in some ways, yes. But the choices that you make in the Telltale games are tracked and they collect data on it. It's why having being connected to your uh, Xbox Live account or your PSN account is necessary to play those games is because it keeps track of what it is that you did. And then at the end, it shows you these are the percentages of people who made X choice and here's where you fell, so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. And I feel like that shares a kind of investment in the chaotic sort of playing out of those events in a ways that I'm not sure until Dawn does. Hmm. Yeah. And, And I think the key moment there is that you end up with that data again, right? Like, for Until Dawn, you only ever know what the end result is, right? There are sort of many of those, but, I mean, in our playthrough, we save two people, right? Um, but I'm never going to be presented with a full map of all the possibilities of how it could have gone, and it's never going to contextualize my decision within a broader thing. It's just going to be like, you weaved your way through it this time, and then this is where you ended up, yeah. right? Um yeah, I don't know. I, I it's it, it's interesting to think about perspective and and like positionality in terms of how you understand then the butterfly effect. I don't know. That that's just a thing that sort of stuck out to me there. Let me let me throw another uh let me move us to thinking about how this thinking about the relationship between this game as a game and as maybe a thing remediating remediating yeah, yeah. cinema. And um my my favorite, my absolute favorite guy, <laughs> Alexander Galloway has a really Al. good quote. Al. Al. Al Galloway. Ali G. Wow, that sounds Ali so G. different. Ali G. <laughs> Ali G. <laughs> Perfect. The original Ali G. Ali G says in, uh, in, that, in that great um, collection of essays, um, Gimmick Action for Moments, that's one of the essays in the collection. Gaming, Essays on Algorithmic Culture is the, is the collection. He make, again, he makes that distinction between sort of actions carried out by the machine, by the computer, broadly speaking, and actions carried out by the operator. And something that we've already sort of hinted at is that the idea that cinematics really, you don't do much. You just kind of sit around and wait for the thing to do something. Um, And so one of the, he he calls, like, these are sort of diegetic machinic actions. These are things that happen within the game. They're within the narrative. They're within the imagined world of the game is literally what he says. Um, But the, the, and the machine is doing something, but the player's not. And there are these ambient actions where you like you're sitting around in GTA Five and the cars are driving around and people are walking around, whatever. That's the ambience act. But there's also the cinematic act, and this is what he he he's describing the cinematic act, and he and he says the the following that there's a certain amount of repurposing and remediation going on here, brought about by a nostalgia for previous media and a fear for the pure uniqueness of video gaming. And then later, shortly thereafter, he says. So in the ambience act, the operator was missed 
in the cinematic action, the operator is forgotten. I, I think this is provocative, and I'm curious if this sparks mm. anything for you guys. The idea that this game is nostalgic for another form of media, what might that mean, and what might that fear be? Yeah, I'm curious. I like that idea. Like, I like the idea of remediation because mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's pretty obvious that Until Dawn draws upon horror tropes, even, you know, like most of the things that happened, including all the jump scares, like, I think we were all kind of like, whoa, we're scared. And then, but like, oh yeah. And like, I get that. You know, like, that's like a thing that like, you know, in the end, it turns out there's like a monster on this uh, map. Right. Just spoilers, you know? Yeah. And that all these kind of like other things you've been seeing happening, like the psycho and this like weird guy with a flamethrower who wanders around are all kind of uh, not the real bad guy. So right. there's like a, there's a, um, what's the trope called? There's like a, a, a reveal, I don't know, where like yeah. it turns out the big bad is someone else, right? Right, right. Um, it's a monster called a Wendigo. Yeah. And, or the Wendigo. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and so I think that draws upon some kind of normal horror tropes. And so I like the idea of remediation. But what I'm curious about is what, how do you produce a form of media without reference to old media. Yeah, you know? I, I, I mean... Like, creating a new thing. I mean, yeah. we're, you're going to be creating something within the culture that you were born, right? Mm-hmm. And then that you were raised and that you live in. So how can you create something that is uniquely exclusive to gaming that doesn't draw upon tropes of old media? And I, I think um, that, that Galloway is actually asking the exact same thing, basically. Yeah. He shortly thereafter, he quotes... Um, Oh, understanding meaning. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, mm. uh, who, who Marshall McLuhan is all about, like the the content of an, a medium is always older media. Like yeah. the content of film because is because it's cultural. It's, right. it's it's a reification of culture into a, like solid form. And know? and sort of like you know McLuhan has this whole system. Where we can't get all the way into McLuhan, but like it, it's always borrowing from the content of the medium is always something else um, from the past. I think one criticism that we could make of this game is that you don't do much as a player. Yeah. And like in in comparison to other sorts of horror games like maybe a Resident Evil or a, a Silent Hill where there's there's certainly exploration in Until Dawn, but it's not it's more a bit of wandering around between cutscenes and you're just sort of finding yeah. little clues. It's more investigative yeah. than it is. Those moments don't rarely produce important narrative elements or really actually horror either. It's just kind of little exploratory scenes. I'd love for you to expand more on the idea of as an editor, the player yes. as an editor. Yeah, 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 I think sure. That you mentioned that yesterday. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. That was a wonderful way of thinking yeah, about I it. Think, yeah, I think, this is, I think this is precisely, like, from the developer's perspective, this is a butterfly effect. They have this, they built this web of data and they're gonna, then the players are gonna navigate it in unpredictable ways from their perspective. And so for them, they're sort of like, we're jumping ahead to the future. We're using like new forms, the form of, of a system and process and that kind of stuff. From the player's perspective, I think what you essentially end up doing is going through these exploratory spaces, some quick time events, but essentially your choices are about picking, you know, what's the next, what's the next cut going to be? Where am I going to cut Do I the run film? or do I hide? Exactly. I, yeah. and, and, and like, you don't know exactly what, the content of that next cinematic clip is going to be, but uh, your your involvement is one of of like a director slash editor that's choosing the sort of emotional or sort of general like sometimes literal direction of the action that's occurring, right? Um, and this, I think, I think this is, I think that's an interesting, maybe that's an interesting observation in and of itself. But when we reconfront what is being remediated, so yes, okay. 
let's say this is you're more like an editor. What does that mean? It means that you, <laughs> when you're operating in this sort of trope-laden kind of horror film world, you are now directly choosing to what extent you want to sort of follow in those tropes. And the all of the all of the classic horror tropes like the last girl or the sexually promiscuous one yeah. who's really annoying and has to die first. Yeah. Um, if you've ever seen like Cabin in the Woods, right? Yeah, they like explicitly <laughs> talk about the tropes of horror right. movies. Like all those people exist, in, right? Until dawn. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like uh, th- we didn't really say this, but like this game is like thoroughgoing and like checking all of those boxes, yeah. right? Um, like maybe with a wink. I think yeah, sometimes pretty sometimes. like pretty straightforwardly, they're like, "This is a game," you know? Right? And they're like, "We're just going to use it." Um, I think it just I think it just changes that relationship because when when you're watching that film, you can just sort of you can see it for what it is, but you're not participating in in actually making the decision to engage in those tropes. And there are certain decisions where, like, there's a, a weird comment that Josh makes about one of the girls early in the game where you can sort of, like, challenge him or sort of, like, go along with him. And that's one where, like, it's cool, like, oh, I can sort of exercise, like, hey, dude, that's creepy. What the hell? Or it'd be like, yeah, right, nice. <laughs> and and that, that, that one there's feels like a meaningful sort of participation and you can sort of shift a little bit. There are other moments though when like you're just like not capable of really breaking out of that trope. Yeah. Um, like, you know, there's a, there's like, everyone's dumb in the game. <laughs> everyone's right. like kind of annoyingly dumb. Yeah. But like yeah. there's a, an option when with a character, Chris, who's like kind of a jerk. Uh, the characterization I think slips a little bit. Some of the characters I'm like, is this guy a jerk, a dummy, or just like blank face? Yeah. And, and Chris at one point, like he's talking and you get an option of either like be aggressive or be like angry and like the options are the same. And I was like, why yeah. are they even giving us the option at this yeah. point? You know, like yeah. there's no meaningful difference in yeah. what is going to happen. So, yeah. I mean, I think, and there's so much that we don't get, right? Yeah. We don't, we will, we'll never know. We should have what... played the game 300 times. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and well, just on that note, I don't, I don't know if this is a game that can necessarily um, hold 300 playthroughs. <laughs> Personally. All right, let's do it. So twenty seven hundred hours. Well, I, I think, I think, but we're gonna find yeah, out. Let's so spend for the, the next, next thirty days, scholars days at play. Um, is I think it would begin to wear thin. Um, yeah, for sure. But I guess on we'll we won't know, and we well we we can't know if the number of combinations that you make as Chris early on determine whether there's something other than anger yeah. or aggressive that he would have there, and that That's could true. be. One of a number of different things that could be under the hood of this game, so to speak, that would, I think, frankly, make it a bit more interesting, right? Where if maybe you choose to play, and I guess it's the other question of how exactly it is that play is functioning here. Yeah. Because there is, for as much as this is, you know, remediating cinema, it's also remediating other forms of games, right? So there's the adventure genre, which it most certainly fits into to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's also just the simple RPG mechanic, right? Which I think, or RPG sort of, I think, mechanic or function where here you are a character and you get to decide how it is that such or such character responds to these various questions. And I think one of the things that this kind of raises in a way that I don't think a number, uh, I don't think is obvious about RPG mechanics, just thinking about the Bioware series and the way that you have a bunch of different dialogue choices and depending on whether or not there's some moral binary attached to them, <laughs> which usually decides how it is that you want to respond to those things, right? I think you typically respond to those questions with whatever you 
typically think should be said, yeah. right? But I'm just thinking also, because that's not the first time that dialogue options were um, inserted into a game. They were also available in Final Fantasy games. But rarely, if I'm sort of controlling um, VV from Final Fantasy IX and I'm answering a question, do I stop and think to myself, what would VD say? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Where I think this game kind of forced us for some moments where, like, you know, if Chris said something that was particularly misogynistic, we'd kind of be like, eh, there's something about us that we don't really want us to choose yeah. that option. Yeah. Or, or even, I mean, there was a time, there's a point in the game where you get tied up and uh, yeah, Chris and uh, other girl. Not Sam. Ashley? Ashley. Yeah, yeah Ashley. Chris and Ashley get, like, tied up and there's a gun in the middle. Right. And the psycho tells Chris, like, okay, and there's, like, saw blades because, of course... Um, and Chris is like, uh, the psycho tells Chris, like, you can either shoot Ashley or shoot yourself, and then the other person gets to go free. Mm-hmm. And Derek, playing at the time, <laughs> was like, well, Chris is kind of the worst. Like, he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. Kind of selfish, you know? And Ashley's telling him, like, kill me. Like, it's okay. Kill me. And, and Derek, you know, being the person he is. I shot Ashley. Was, yeah, <laughs> was like, yeah, I'll shoot Ashley, right? Um yeah, which I think you at that point were saying like this is what Chris would do, you know, I, like you know that that was okay. So there were moments <laughs> where I did role play as like this is what I think. Um, I tried to be like a conflict resolution mat, but then with this particular decision, um, I had sort of I was I then was like reflecting about Chris and Ashley, and they're like th- like they had been through this traumatic experience where Chris had like saved Ashley's life, and Ashley yells at one point like. Let me choose, you know, let you, you saved me. You chose to save me. Now let me choose. Please shoot me. It's weird to think that like him shooting her is the, is the quote unquote better thing, but it's like taking her seriously and respecting what she's desiring. And, and then ultimately you are wrong yeah, because yeah. scholars at play pro tip. Yeah. <laughs> scholars at play pro tip. Pro, 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 pro tip. Don't shoot Ashley in the head because the guns, because the bullets are blanks and she kills you later because of it. Yes. <laughs> or lets you die yeah. because of because of that. Yeah. Well. Which messed me up. Yeah. <laughs> I felt real like, I don't know. I think it, it justified my understanding of it rather than your understanding. No, and, and I know. You're what, more like nuanced, like feminist right, understanding I, right, of it. Exactly. Yeah, right. Based on agency. And that's, right. Exactly. Yeah. So I was like, I was trying to like let her voice be heard and let her make decisions. <laughs> and the game developer's like, nope, you just tried to straight up murder someone. <laughs> See, but like, it just raises the question of structure and agency of, you know, the kind of free play versus the determined play. Yeah. Like it, you had the freedom to decide some things for Ashley, but not the freedom to decide that she would remember the, oh, you decided to kill me, not you decided to listen to me. Right. And right. then, because what ends up happening, I don't know if we spoiled this part, is Ashley then is like, oh, when to go? Right. Yeah. Chris? Like Chris runs up to a door yep. and Ashley's there and he's like, unlock the door. And, and Ashley just like looks him and it flashes just, into her head and she remembers... Chris trying to shoot her, and she mm-hmm. just like backs up, and Wendigo straight decapitates him, rips his head off. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I think ultimately this this uh, the question of like what the player's role in the game is is complex and, and complicated because mm-hmm. it's like at moments you are sort of role playing or like or taking that directorial position. At other moments, you are just trying to like figure out which course of action would be best in a general yeah. sense. Uh, right. I don't know. It's it's all, it's a tangled web. Yeah. So, something I wanted to bring up is actually from the Arsith piece, which oh, yes. I think kind of deals with this. Yeah. And Arsith writes about these two um, ideas called uh, aporia and epiphany. Aporia is the idea, it comes from the Greek aporia for, uh, for <laughs> like uh, puzzles, like forgetfulness. Like it's a word that like, 
uh, and that he uses basically as meaning when you have multiple options, ap- aporia is when uh, certain options get restricted. And that, I think, really characterizes this game because you can go through the game and you choose one or the other and you will never know what the other one is unless, obviously, you replay the game, right? And so that's the one. The other is epiphany, which is that moment when, like, all your choices become clear. And I think those moments actually exist in the game, too. Like, that Mm -hmm. thing we just talked about um, where Chris runs up to the door and Ashley's there. It literally flashes into her mind and shows you, like, here is the effect of your choice, right? Yeah. Here is the ramification of the choice you made, which is you tried to shoot her, choice, effect, you die, right? Yeah. <laughs> Chris gets his decapitated. decapitated. Um, and this happens a lot. Like, you'll, you'll be running through, like, a basement, and it'll flash into your head, and you'll remember when someone put, like, a baseball bat in the basement. And so you suddenly know, like, I made that choice a while ago, epiphany, it was revealed to me in the game. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not sure if... This idea of aporia and epiphany is like, you know, the best way to think about hypertext, but writing about a game, you know, 18 years before Until Dawn come out, comes out, yeah. I think he perfectly explains the dynamic, right? Yeah. Is that it's about restriction and then like showing you the effects of your actions mm-hmm. in like epiphanous ways. Right. Epinopophic. In yeah. a way of an epiphany. Yeah. <laughs> um, literally. Yeah. You know? And, 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 and I think that's the perfect, I think that's the perfect way to understand that. I hadn't even thought of that, that the way before. And like Arseth is in that moment when he sort of introduces these terms in, in, in cybertext, he's arguing, he's not arguing against this modern, like modernist in the sense of literature, sort of where the, the epiphany is a sort of transcendental moment that happens in the reader. Um, there's an explicit, imminent, planned epiphany in, in these cyber texts, yeah. in these, what he also calls games. I mean, he's literally talking about games in that yeah. moment. And I don't know. Actually, maybe you've turned me around on like this hard line. Like this is basically just cinema again. Is that this is like Arseth calls it this dialectic between um, searching and finding. Like yeah. this is this is this is the aporia and the epiphany. That that is like a fundamental. It's a it's a fundamental trope of games, um, and and it's it's. I mean, we we don't have to get super deep in the literature like terms of of how that all works, but. The idea that that's sort of constitutive of the of the gaming experience is, I think, a really sort of fascinating concept there. Just an interesting thing to throw in there on the game question. Um, so there's a moment when the first choices that you get to make, uh, it might even be the first like major butterfly effect choice, is um, Beth and Hannah are running away from this monster. Those are those twins that right, yeah. sort of in the prelude. Yeah. Um, and there's a moment where I forget which one is holding which, but one is holding on to the ledge and the other is sort of holding on to the hand and they're all kind of grasping for life. Dangling from the cliff. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the monster that can shoot fire is coming across the way. And later in the game, you find out that this monster that has the long hair and is like all creepy with the you know flamethrower is actually a man who's been guy. like fighting the, the Wendigo yeah. for some time. The guy who looks disturbingly like William H. Macy. <laughs> he does. But that's yeah. just me. <laughs> right. Um, that he was actually kind of trying to be good. Yeah. Um, and so him reaching out the hand to try and help the girls up, you know, we chose, Derek and I, or perhaps just Derek, <laughs> nope, 
forget this guy. Yeah. We're all going to take our risks going down this hill. Yeah. Derek and that led to both of women. them dying. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is it, is it too far? I don't. But I'm, that I'm, one's staying in, though. <laughs> but I'm really curious if you had chosen the other option, would that have led to everyone knowing who this guy is earlier on? Knowing what the Wendigo is earlier on, yeah, and then I'd, it being I'd a radically no. different game. Yeah, I feel I'm like not the, sure, the but... Wendigo turn feels to me like important to the late yeah. plot. But the question of this this figure, yeah, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's like I think I'm sorry to cut in, but like I, I think that was one of the horror trips I was talking about too. Was that like when you start the game, like, you know, I, I actually came in a little like half, maybe like a quarter way through the game because Derek and Trell don't like me and they started playing without me. <laughs> uh, but I was like, there's so many bad guys. Like there's like this psycho with like a mask and then there's a guy who has like wolves and a flamethrower. And then like pretty soon Matt gets, or in our game got killed by the Wendigo. You just see like a shadow. And I was like, what the heck? Like this is like three different horror genres all yeah. mashed together. You yeah. know, psycho killer, the like lone wolf, <laughs> lone guy with wolves, um, and like a monster. Like this is ridiculous. Yeah. And then you slowly learn that they're actually all connected, you mm-hmm. know? And the, the with the reveal when Josh takes off the psycho killer mask and you're like, oh, I mean, I thought it was a twin. Mm-hmm. That was my, I was like, it's another twin. It's mm-hmm. all twins and clones. Yeah. Um, and then when you find out that this guy with the flamethrower is actually also dealing with the Wendigos, that like, turns out all these threads that you thought were unrelated mm-hmm. are synced. Um, I thought it was really neat. And yeah. I, I thought narratively yes. was a really great thing. And it's kind of similar in shows, lots of my favorite TV shows, which, you know, they'll have A and B and C plots and then reveal throughout the entire episode that like, nope, they're all actually just the A plot and you just didn't know it yet, you know? Yeah. So that I think it would be kind of essential to keeping that coming later and that big ep- epiphany moment. Yeah. And, and, and that shows how the logic of hypertext transforms not just I mean the logic of hypertext can be seen in both video games but also in like TV shows and how like in a, in a certain sense we could say yes this is like maybe we could argue oh no actually this game is more gamic than I thought or this game is really just a, a film but that sort of logic of hiding parts of the text and then revealing them to you has become a sort of trope in games but also in TV recently as well yeah. so yeah I think that I think that I think that shows how this aporia epiphany, language is helpful for understanding sort of formal changes in in media you know in, in multiple kinds yeah. of media i will say i i enjoyed the game more as we progressed through it yeah and i think and this is something i mentioned just briefly yesterday too is that like the thing that really scares me is like the lack of knowledge in horror which maybe that just speaks to like me being an academic and i'm like <laughs> but we don't know everything you know but yeah like, that there were all these enemies and, like, you know, you're wandering through, like, this, you know, sanatorium because, like, of course you are, you know. And I'm like, who is the end? Like, who do we even know, you know? And then later when, like, you finally see the psycho and he's, like, chasing you and then you see the Wendigo, I was like, not that scared. You know, even yeah. though there were jump scares, I was like, okay, we've identified the enemies. We can, Like, you know, even if the game isn't as much about gameplay, I was like, we have tools now. We know that they fear fire. We know that, like, we have shotguns now and so yeah. you have quick time. But, like... That the kind of like the adding of those tools is what like made me less scared, even though there were still a bunch of jump scares. Yeah. Um, it was that initial point where you're just kind of wandering around and you're like, people are dying, I guess. And yeah. like I'm in this morgue and like a rat crawls out of a dude's skull. And I was like, come on, guy. Like, yeah. what is this? You know? Yeah. 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 Well, um, do we have anything else we want to say? Anything else unresolved? Lingering thoughts? <laughs> If not, uh, I think that's going to do it for us then. Yeah. I wish we could have rescued all all eight of them. I just wish we could have <laughs> saved all those teens. Oh, I have one more thing. Okay. <laughs> I'm Please. sorry. Um, yeah, I, I just, I'm just kind of, this is probably something that we'd have to probably replay it through a bunch, but 
I want to just congratulate Until Dawn into that there were hundreds of endings, but I did feel like apart from two or three very small moments, it felt like a kind of seamless story, you know? Like that the choices we made were like, could have been its own game, yeah. you know? Um, like there's a couple moments where like, it turns out one of the Wendigos is actually one of the sisters who fell down because Wendigos are a spirit, whatever. Um, some bullshit. Yeah, some nonsense. Yeah. And like, it turns out one of them is actually the sister Hannah. And like, that never really came of anything, you know? Yeah. And like, at one point she's like killing the other Wendigos and I was like, what? And then the game ended, you know? Yeah. And so there's a couple moments like that through the game where I was like, why did that just happen, you know? Mm -hmm. But other than that, I, I will say it's actually pretty well done in the terms yeah. of like, the way that we did it, I could see there were other options, but I was like, yeah, like it's satisfying. You know, yeah. I see why things happen. I see the way things happen. And so while I, you know, am just generally not super a fan of the <laughs> horror genre, yeah. um, I thought as a narrative, it was really well tied together and yeah. well done. And I just found out that they're releasing a prequel to this called oh. The Inpatient, okay. um, which hopefully would just, just be eight hours of Peter Stormare just yelling. That would be good. Would be great for me. Uh, yeah, we sh I mean, we could have, uh, we should have talked a little more about that, but. <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe we can revisit these, some of these ideas. Perhaps um, for the next Halloween episode. Ooh. Who knows? Spooky. Spooky I'll throw one thing into the pot. Please do. And this is something that I walked away from the game wondering. So there are a number of choices, especially very close to the end, where we may have been able to make one simple choice that could have saved a single character. And I'm pretty sure that some of those hundreds of endings are the same ending that we did plus like one person yeah. because we yep. made one small choice. Yeah. So or because I didn't hold the controller exactly still. Yeah, that was some nonsense. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, I just uh, you know, as many branches as there are, there's yeah. a big difference between the branch that's like literally part of the tree yeah. and the twig that like I can take <laughs> off yeah. right. and do whatever with. Yeah. So like, yeah. yes, I see you hundreds of branches because there are hundreds of leaves on a tree, but right, like, right, right. not all of them are like, oh, yeah. unbelievably different. Like it's not like there's yeah. a million like 20 different and literal endings to this game. Right. But yeah. yeah, okay, well that's going to do it for us. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um we're going to sort of be, uh, hopefully this will be coming out on October 31st. Um, so it won't be, we, uh, again, we're doing a, a, so the talk and play series here at Vanderbilt. So if you're in Nashville area, keep an eye out um, for more information about future sessions. And then we are going to try and have like a little bit of uh, game of the year kind of stuff. We're going to yeah. talk about the format for that. But we're, we're thinking about like putting together, like thinking about the games we played this year. A lot of them are the ones that came out this year, but there's a game we played that was important i think we're gonna include it in those considerations and uh we would also want anybody to send us mail or emails at our email which is uh scholars at play podcast yeah, don't send us mail. Com. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Se only send terrell mail yeah <laughs> his address is, no, is. Uh, <laughs> five 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 <laughs> nowheresville yeah nashville okay. tennessee so uh, the weekend of november 4th uh, yeah. we will be doing a mailbag episode so yeah. if you have questions uh, talk about how like you have, maybe have some favorite members like I don't know like guys like one of the guys on it who's really funny and yeah. like unique and fun and his name's Kyle and like dear you, you do scholars that, yeah. at play 
What is your favorite thing about Kyle? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's basically going to be the whole episode. So if you have any ideas, questions, comments, or yeah. we're just we're just going to make up the questions if you don't. So yeah, basically. Please send them in, scholarsatplaypodcast yeah. at gmail.com. And, and like us, you know, I, we, we never ask for this, but if you would like, if you like the show that we do, if you like, if you want us to make more episodes, go ahead and like us on SoundCloud. Give us a rating on iTunes. I mean, it's, yeah. it's not something that we've asked for before, but, um, and, and feel free to share these episodes with people you know that you think might be interested in games and sort of academic discussions of them. Yep. Keep it on the website. Yeah. Yeah. We've got, we're, uh, we're posting every now and then we're posting some, some content there. It's tough in the middle of the semester when you're writing a bunch yeah. of other stuff. But, and the um, website address is scholars at play.net. All right. Yeah. Boom. Got the net. So that's going to do it for us. Um, we will see you again soon. Um, take care. All right. Thanks guys. Be easy. <laughs>